So you ready to deep dive into some uh, 70s gems? <laughs> sure. should start off with a little introduction um first of all uh welcome to my podcast do you want to tell a little bit about yourself like how you ended up in korea and how you ended up interested in uh 70s and 60s like classic vinyl and um songs um yeah i first came to korea 19 years ago um, just for a year to teach english and uh, ended up you know loving the place so much that i've been here on and off, but for most of the time ever since. Um, I went away in 2015 and got a master's in Korean studies at the University of Washington. Um, but other than that, I've usually been here uh, just teaching English. And then in 2005, I started the blog, uh, Gusts of Popular Feeling, which is kind of, it's about whatever I'm interested in at the moment, but a lot of it's history and media analysis. And, and I've always liked, you know, 60s and 70s rock music. So um, I, w- I was not a big fan of um, sort of the current K-pop, though there were a lot of indie bands I liked. Um, but uh, as I slowly started to discover a lot of this vinyl that had been you know, converted to MP3 that was going around on uh, file sharing apps like uh, Emule back 15 years ago, I started to listen to it. And now, I mean, you know, in the last few years, so much has gone up on YouTube. Um, so I've been learning a lot about that period. Yeah, well, I mean, I found you through your blog um, because I thought it was unique in that it gave a lot of insight um, into the Korean culture and history and the things that you're not going to find on, like, you know, sort of the export K-pop scene, really. Right. Yeah, which has kind of morphed into, like, export k-pop culture studies have you dealt with any of that at all not really no yeah good (laughs) it's not it's not worth touching um yeah so I, i thought that was really great and then i reached out and you were nice enough to send me a whole bunch of articles and um you know links and advice about record shopping which i really appreciated because i was coming from sort of you know traveling back and forth to japan and going record shopping in japan and you know the japanese they're very uh like they have a deep respect for their own sort of pop culture minutiae and so you go looking for group sounds records in japan and you're gonna find you know all sorts of things lovingly cataloged um but i think it's it's a little more difficult um for it was well yeah, I mean, I don't speak Korean, which makes it harder 
so I was relying on sort of Japanese sources, but um, you explained that the Japanese had also kind of co-opted the uh, Korean vinyl market for some of this stuff as well. Right. Yeah, there just wasn't a lot of interest in this by the 1990s. Yeah, it's an interesting thing about Korea. It's, you know, it's so on the go that there isn't a lot of widespread interest in that older culture, really. And I mean, like, can you imagine just going into a CD shop and, and even, you know, 15 years ago when there were actually lots of CDs to buy and not being able to find the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or something. And that's what you have in Korea. It, it kind of astounds me. Yeah, I would, when I was in Seoul in October, um, I had met some friends in um, Yeongdong. And went into just like a CD store. And yeah, it was all just the newest of the new releases. You couldn't even, I mean, it wasn't even like older pop stuff. It was just, here's what's new. You know, go ahead and buy it. (laughs) But um, I did find the underground shopping center with um, just the walls and walls of vinyl. And some very amused um, shopkeepers at what I was doing there. But I persevered. (laughs) But you know what was interesting was I did find like they had these brand new vinyl releases of like the Keyboys and some other um, artists that were dated like, you know, from maybe 2018, 2019 and very expensive, like maybe $75 US, $60 US. Yeah, if you want, they have been re-releasing quite a bit of that stuff, interestingly enough, on vinyl. Um, and but not so much on CD, uh, though there were some CD releases, like you know, well over a decade ago. Yeah, well, it looked to me like they were they were catered at, you know, kind of a specific market. Um, I mean, you probably remember, you know, when they started um, releasing CDs, you know, for the first time, and they had all of the like the classic like Beatles, Led Zeppelin, or whatever, and they they put them on CD in like these big. Like, it was a whole big production. And um, that's kind of what those vinyls reminded me of. Like, they were definitely catered to, like, the record collector. Or, like, the, you know, they may not even get listened to necessarily. Or you play it once, and then it just sits on the shelf. Looking beautiful. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just, just sort of um, demonstrating your, your taste, I guess, as a connoisseur. It's. I mean, it's interesting because this, this, the the records in those in that downtown area are do tend to be a lot more expensive. I, I saw a Kim Jong Mi record there. ago i think maybe her second album and you know i just asked i'm just curious because i know this is going to be expensive and he was like yeah it's 700 bucks so but um i haven't generally seen stuff that expensive in the area around dongmyo or around the flea market but um but i'm sure there is a a place like dole records is it's interesting because he has he has a ton of stuff but he doesn't actually like put it in the little like, vinyl sleeves, um, so it's like every time you're going through pulling stuff out, you're probably damaging the, the albums and <laughs> the album covers. So, yeah. 
it's interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, I like shopping for records. Well, um, so I have read a bunch about like the Japanese group sounds because the name is of the genre is the same in Korean. I initially thought that they were kind of of a similar movement, but I don't think that is the case. Um, so the Japanese group sounds kind of grew out of like this movement of um, sort of these instrumental bands that kind of sort of sprung up in the wake of like the ventures um, and a lot of them did pop up in places like um, Yokohama, the Golden Cups. Monday morning, three Um, but then they kind of flipped when the Beatles hit, and they all added singers, and um, sort of went from there. And then that movement kind of petered out in like the late 60s, and rock kind of went underground for a while. Okay, yeah. Well, in Korea, it was different, because, yeah, so you're saying there, there are, are actually records from that time. Oh, yeah. That were in the early 60s yeah you don't really have that so much in korea there's very there's uh, far fewer records from the early 60s there was basically like uh, it the entire scene in korea grew out of the the u.s base scene the the migun mude or the uh, american army stage and and that you know in the late 1950s that was um or even throughout the 1950s and early 60s you know, if you were a musician, that was really where you wanted to work. And especially after the war, I mean, that was one of the few opportunities you had to work and make good money. And it was quite competitive. And, um, you know, probably the best known of those musicians was Shin Jun Hyun, as far as rock music is concerned. Um, there was also the Kim sisters who, you know, ended up in Las Vegas and uh, lived in the U.S. Uh, eventually. <laughs> Shin first recorded an instrumental album uh, in 1958 or 9. And then he f 
formed the the Ad Four, and they released an album in 1964, the same year as the Keyboys. And they were so they were both groups that came out of the, the U.S. bass scene. And then the thing that was though that you know those albums weren't popular. They were never really on the radio.、Um, that didn't happen until. Really late '68,、um, and it, you don't really see them on the charts until 1969, and that's when、uh, Shin Chunhyun had a, a, a big hit with the Pearl Sisters, where a pair of you know、uh, high school age sisters, and you know the song Nima is first on the charts in very early、uh, 1969. A string of hits with him and with other producers and songwriters, and the Keyboys were also on the charts that year. So 1969 is basically the year that it starts to come together, where it, there's actually a kind of a public consciousness. And a part of that as well was the the first,、uh, I guess the, the production company was called Playboy Productions. So it was the Playboy Cup, which was a, a big, basic group sound competition. In Seoul in May 1969, and when you go through the weekly magazines and read the lists of these bands, like I, I've never heard of most of them. There, you know, I think there are around 15 or 16 bands, if I remember correctly, and I knew maybe of four or five of them. You know, so many of these groups were playing, but they never had a chance to record an album. That bass scene was all just live music,、um, like big band stuff, and just playing kind of the. The hits of the day, really, right? Well, the the interesting thing about、um, how the bass scene kind of affected the the sound of music. This is something I've kind of started to think about. I'm trying to look for the right words. Sort of the, the the lack of opportunity and the way the bass scene was structured. One was, you know, it was it was very intensely competitive, and they had, you know, they had to audition like every few months. And、um, what was interesting was that these bands had to be really、um, versatile. They had to be able to play sort of jazz for the officers and rock for the, you know, for some of the soldiers and country for other soldiers. And so they needed to be able to play a lot of different styles. And then once the club scenes starts to take off and the go-go clubs appear, and that's. You know, basically in downtown Seoul in、um, the late '60s and early '70s, they were expected to be able to play lots of different styles.、Um, and usually, these clubs would bring in lots of like musicians playing different styles. They bring in comedians because you know it was a limited audience that could afford it. So they tried to make it as enticing as possible. And I talked to one band. Um, called Rush of high school kids who were on the Yongsan base, and they actually had a year-long contract to play at the Las Vegas Club in 1971-72. It was basically a you know seven days a week they would be playing at this club, and they had to learn a new song every week. And、uh, from some of the playbills they、uh, they gave me scans of and talking to them, like they they played 
rock songs, folk songs, trot songs. So there was a lot of, you know, this versatility, I think, is something that may have kind of helped. You know, if you think of, say, Sateji as kind of this blueprint for early K-pop, and the, the mix of styles, I think, might kind of come from that versatility even back then. And who would have been in the audience um, of these clubs? Because for the, you know, for the Japanese group sounds bands, it was a lot of, like, teenagers. Like, it was a really teenager-heavy scene. But, um, I mean, if, if it takes money to get in, that's not necessarily, like, a teen, uh, <laughs> you know, teen magnet. Right. The, um, I know usually, like, because these would have been nightclubs, so it would have been older people, not teens. And, of course, yeah, the money, I mean, it was a substantial amount, especially to go to a go-go club, um, where you might be out all night. They were just going to close the doors at midnight, because there was, there was a curfew on from 12 to 4. Um, though the government at different times tried to... You know, make them close at say two and just simply force them to close at midnight before the, the curfew but um yeah it was you know expensive entry fee um it would have been more adults um from what uh, this american uh, band was saying there was a there was also some foreigners there you'd see some gis at some of these shows uh, but i don't know i don't think they were a large part of it Usually, for younger audiences, it would be um, like a shows at Citizens Hall or some of these other public halls that would be usually maybe daytime shows or early evening shows where some younger people might be able to go. And those, I think, would be maybe a more reduced fee. But I think, yeah, a lot of the time the audience would have been older. There were always stories in the, the weekly magazines of, you know, girls wearing wigs, high school girls wearing wigs, <laughs> sneak in. And, um, but I mean, the, the, there certainly were these cautionary tales of teenagers getting involved. And, and of course, one of the famous stories was of uh, when uh, Cliff Richard came to Seoul in October 1969. Oh, Cliff! Sometimes it must be difficult not to feel as if you really are a Cliff! When fascists keep trying to push you over it. Are they the lemmings? Or are you Cliff? Or are you Cliff? The young ones, darling, we're the young ones. And the young ones shouldn't be afraid to live love while the flame is strong. He had about, what was it? There were two, two competing <laughs> fan clubs. This might sound familiar, right? And um, and they all came to Gimpo Airport to greet him and were holding signs. And actually I managed to find, um, I couldn't find much in the Korean language media about him, his arrival, but then realized I have sort of a, a large archive of the Korea Times. And the Korea Times, it turns out, was um, a sponsor. So they covered it rather intensely. Oh my God. So they have all these photos of the girls at the airport and and um, of him arriving. Uh, they left out the fact that one of the Korean papers mentioned that um, the riot police had to be called to push them back so he could get out of the airport. <laughs> then they followed him into town on, uh, you know, they got on buses and followed him into town. And then he had like three shows. One was at Citizens Hall, which is where the Sejong Cultural Center is. 
and, um, and then two at, I think, Iwa University. And they were actually filmed. Um, MBC, you can find at least one of the songs on YouTube of him playing and, you know, someone throws, it was said that they were throwing underwear at him, but, you know, it's <laughs> pretty sure it's a handkerchief. But, uh, you know, they're screaming and then there's all this commentary afterwards about how these girls are, you know, oh, what's wrong with them? And, <laughs> and you know, one guy was like, this, this kind of activity by these girls is just unhealthy. Um, this one psychologist at a talk and, and whereas the, the Korea Times seemed to be kind of proud, like saying, well, you know, our, our kids are just like you know, kids in the West, you know, they're, they're big fans. And so it was interesting. Oh my God, that's hilarious. I hadn't heard that story before, but um, I believe every word. And um, yeah, the more things change, I guess the more they stay the same, really. The fighting fan clubs. Yeah, that made me chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to look up that song. Um, I guess there were foreigners coming in um, if Cliff Richard was performing there, but certainly not the Japanese group sounds bands. They would not have been uh, playing in Korea. But um it is interesting, like the mix of the rock and the jazz and the folk kind of cycling in with the trot. Um, yeah, it, it it certainly would lead to like a very fertile breeding ground for just a very unique sound. Like the Korean, the, the Korean sense of melody, I think, is very distinct. Right. And it was, I mean, in, and that was a big influence even on Trot back in the, the 30s and in Japan as well. Because, um, yeah. you know, Trot is, is seen as, you know, this Japanese um, form of music and is sometimes criticized uh, and has been banned even by Park Chang-hee um, for that reason. But in fact, you know, a lot of its signature sound, like Enka, I'm thinking of, mm. uh, was influenced by Koreans and Arirang was a massive hit in Japan back in I think the 30s. But yeah, when you listen to a lot of that music in the the late '60s and early '70s, it's yeah, you sometimes get some really interesting blends of of music. Yeah, well, let's. Um, so we're at like 1969, 1970. But does that overlap with like the campus rock? sort of phenomenon well the stuff that was known as group sound was generally i think this the music that came out of the u.s bass sound right okay and a lot of a lot of those um bands you do like someone like shinjin hansei was more working class and i think you do get some of these guys who like the, the band last chance who as far as i know they were covered in the media uh, a lot at the time because they had really long hair which then they when the first hair crackdown started in 1970 they had to cut it but um but they were well known you see them on you know the ads for the clubs they're playing all the time and yet they only recorded a christmas album as far as i know
probably have some tracks on some omnibus albums somewhere but um i don't know like because sometimes some of these bands did have people who were had come from in more privileged upbringings and um but i think you have a mix there of sort of working class and people who grew up around the bases say down in daegu um, which i think is where last chance was from but then that scene kind of is popular or you know relatively so um in the early 1970s and then really the campus sound i think comes out of the, the folk music scene which basically starts with twin folio they started playing in 1967. <laughs> Um, there were two university students, um, Yun Hyangju and Song Chang-shik. And even then by 1970, you had somewhere between 20 and 30 folk groups, uh, but only a few were recording. And for several years, it's very, it's, you know, it's pretty derivative of American um, folk music. Their concerts are, and even albums are just playing a lot of covers of American folk music. And it's all very kind of twee sounding. And then that starts to morph in late 73, 74 um, into sort of folk rock. And a lot of that kind of, that whole sound came from, um, a session band that was known as um, Dongbang 8-Bit or Light of the East. And that was like, they first worked with Lee Jung-hee and, and sort of the, in a way, the signature record there was Lee Jung-hee's um, album, um, like Songs from a Room or Gugan Na, which was, that song was a big hit in 19, late 73, one of the biggest hits of the year. And then he also did the soundtrack for the, the movie Biel de la Goyang which was the, the massive hit. It was kind of the youth culture hit and all these, you know, lots of university students went to go see it, but it was a big hit generally. Um, and that's kind of where this whole youth culture kind of really takes off at that time. So basically the folk music kind of morphs into this folk rock and starts to become popular. And this band, you know, they could be quite psychedelic. They were really versatile. They did folk, they did rock. They may have invented synth pop. Um, and then basically most of the people with that whole scene are arrested for marijuana use in late uh, 75, early 76.
that's pushed down. And then basically the whole campus rock scene was very like San Lim was very influenced by that music. If you, if you didn't hear that folk music, the folk rock, which I, I hadn't for years, only in the last year or so I, did I finally hear it. Um, if you listen to Shin Jung Hyun's stuff, um, his really psychedelic stuff, and you listen to San Lim's more like heavy guitar rock, you, you kind of wonder where that sound came from. But if you, you know, put the, if you place that folk rock from 74, 75 in that continuum, then it makes perfect sense. something that is I mean I found very little about in English but that was pretty pivotal in um, sort of the music scene like I mean it, it really changed a lot of people's career trajectories or life trajectories really oh definitely yeah as you know my audience um, the hundred people or so that listen to me like it's a lot of j-pop and k-pop fans of them the modern stuff and if you know anyone knows anything is that drugs are like a huge just no-no in um sort of contemporary korea especially i mean we've you know we've seen the members of big bang get in trouble for this stuff but yeah so i think it might be kind of shocking for some younger people to learn that marijuana wasn't always um this big taboo no it wasn't um it's it wasn't smoked by young people traditionally but it was i mean and this wasn't across the board or anything but a lot of the peace corps volunteers who were here in the 60s and 70s a lot of them that i've talked to have told me stories of how um old people would smoke it just medicinally um because you know they'd worked their whole lives out in the fields and were you know bent over and and you know it was basically free medicine and you know one former Peace Corps volunteer just told me of, you know, watching these people working in the field and this old grandfather was sitting there and kind of looking at the rice. And he said, whoa, look, you can see the rice growing. (laughs) 
And, he, you know, he had a pipe with him and he's like, what, what are you smoking? What's Sam? And Sam was the name just for hemp. And, um, yeah, I've heard lots of these stories. And so it was made illegal in 1970, but it was, that was, so this is the research I've done. Yeah, which I read your I read your paper. It was absolutely fascinating. Um, all the you know quotes from even government documents and stuff. It was really really interesting history. Yeah, I think it mostly came from the Nixon doctrine, and um, Nixon decided to pull troops out. And pretty much the the day after that announcement, um, the Korean government says, "Oh, you know," suddenly in the media, every newspaper reports that there's a problem with marijuana. And um, the young people are smoking it because marijuana just, you know, hemp grew everywhere. It was very easy for the entrepreneurs around the, the U.S. bases to realize, oh, oh, U.S. soldiers like this stuff. And so it was readily available. And for years, um, the uh, American government complained to uh, the Korean government about this. And the Korean government didn't care. And I suspect that might be because it was just a, you know, traditional remedy or I'm not really sure but they did nothing for years and then suddenly they made it illegal except they didn't really enforce it anywhere except around U.S. bases and the reports of those arrests were not very common like of, of arrests outside U.S. bases you occasionally find a report on it but it's very rare and you don't start to see more reports until about 1975 of maybe some university students being arrested um, but a lot of these musicians have said, like, we didn't really realize it was illegal. And it's, you know, I think it was pretty common amongst the musicians, certainly, and a, a certain, by, you know, the mid-70s, a certain subsection of, of university students and maybe even some high school students were smoking it. It was, it was fairly common. And, you know, one, one musician who was in um, Shinjung Hyun's band, the men, you know, he said... Uh, it was, you know, he just said, we didn't think anything of it. It was like saying, oh, let's let's go have a, a drink. It was very common. We just kind of sit on the sidewalk and smoke it. Yeah, yeah. And so then, I mean, the big wave of arrest kind of has, I mean, it kind of has a political undertone to it um, more than anything else, more than sort of an anti-vice or sort of morality tone if everyone was doing yeah. it. Yeah. Because, I mean, that the, the arrests in 1975, like the context of that, like in 1972, the Yushin Constitution comes in, um, like martial law is declared, uh, the Constitution is sort of, they ram a new Constitution through. I mean, it's voted for, but there's a lot of pressure for people to support it. There are some cute cartoons and stuff in the um, the weekly magazines, kind of, from now on, the president will do all the work. You don't need to vote for stuff. And... Um, and essentially, that made him president for Park Chung-hee, president for life, um, gave him control of the National Assembly. And then they you know, basically managed to hold down opposition uh, to that for a year or so. But then by late 73, 74, students are starting to protest it. And the height of that comes in 1975, like the Donga Ilbo the newspapers were essentially controlled by the government and they were told not to report any of these student demonstrations. And of course, the student demonstrations were not supposed to, they were held on campus. So they tried to keep it as secret as possible. In, I think it was late 74, early 75, certainly, the Dong Ilbo decides it's going to start reporting on this. And so the government basically cuts 
all the um, it basically pressures all of this uh, advertisers to cut the advertising and eventually pressures the uh, the um, newspaper to fire the offending reporters and and then when South Vietnam falls in April 1975. Um, the government, I mean, Park Chung, he kind of freaks out and suddenly emergency measure nine comes in and that basically just bans all dissent. Um, you know, you can be arrested and thrown in prison very easily. And then he, very quickly after that, they institute the, um, what was it? The Hakto Hogukdan, um, the Student Defense Corps, um, close all student circles, like student groups, like just, you know, like fun groups that students would have and just kind of militarizes the whole country. And so it's during, and they, that's very quickly followed by banning a ton of songs. By the end of 1975, they banned over 200 pop, rock, folk, trot songs, um, usually for dubious reasons. They also banned over 200 American uh, folk and rock songs. And then and that came at rates, the American song bands came at about the same time as the, uh, the marijuana crackdown, which starts with Lee Jung-hee being arrested. And then by Janu late January, about 54 entertainers, uh, mostly musicians, have been arrested. And I think, yeah, I think in all it was around 75 entertainers, mostly musicians, were arrested. And a lot of the time they were, I mean, they were, would have been in, thrown in prison briefly until the, their trial. Um, a lot of them were sent to mental institutions because they were, you know, quote unquote, drug addicts. And I mean, Shin Jing Hun even said he was, you know, get beaten and uh, subjected to water torture, um, I think, to give up names of people. And um, and then they took a, several of those musicians and just banned them from uh, recording, uh, performing uh, or broadcasting for life. Now, that turned it to be Pak Chung hees life. But that right there basically just removes a lot of the innovators from the music scene for the next five years. And during that time, music kind of gets a lot sort of simpler and happier. That was Pak Chung hees big concern is music that's happy. And we're trying to develop the country and we need a positive attitude. And um, he didn't like any of this kind of sad music. Because most of this music was not critical. It, it wasn't critical of the government at all. People knew they couldn't get away with that. But um, he just didn't like the tone of it. It was defeatist and sad. And so that's one of the reasons so many of these songs were banned. But um, yeah, basically that, that was just a watershed. It completely changed the music scene.
while you had the campus rock kind of come up, I think that was quite controlled in many ways. That was, yeah, that was the impression I had from, you know, the little reading that I did was that the campus rock scene in that era, sort of the mid late seventies was kind of like the controlled opposition almost. And then you had sort of the, you know, television singers, um, you know, that looked nice and sang on TV and they were happy and it was kind of your two poles. Right. And I think, I don't know enough about the group sound or sorry, the, um, the campus rock competitions. Mm. They would have those on, those would be televised. And, but I, they have the vinyl cause I saw them. Um, I did see some of those campus rock song competition vinyls. Like when I was looking at records, and the only reason I, you know, looked into those was, um, I guess, Lee Suman was uh, in one of them. Right. Yeah. And he was part of that scene as well. Um, sort of the folk rock scene, like their the signature of the, the Light of the East session band, uh, their signature albums were the Golden Folk albums, of which there's 14 volumes. So he recorded... Uh, several songs there and he was originally a member of uh, April and May um, but yeah dropped out early on I f- either because it was sort of hurting his school performance or illness I forget but he was originally part of that band and I think my favorite album by them was recorded by the Light of the East the session band um, which kind of mixes in you know really fuzzy guitar sound and um organs and um, like Moog synthesizers. very much anymore um yeah but maybe this is a good uh segue to um your theory about korea being the innovators of electronic music because you know i am familiar of course with uh harry hosnell and yellow magic orchestra But um, you think that Korea has maybe uh, innovated before before them? Yeah, the um, I mean, you have lots of electronic. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. Music before that, I mean. Switched on Bach. Exactly, and you could also have groups say like Silver Apples, who were in New York, but who ever heard of them at the time? They weren't yeah. popular. Yeah. Yeah, I found an article recently about the, the Light of the East. Um, that's right. They were recording the soundtrack for um, Biel de la Gohyang, or the 
Heavenly Homecoming to Stars, the the massive hit film of 1974, um, and sort of the, it was very sort of in many ways ground zero for youth culture at that time, everything surrounding it, and the um, soundtrack album, you know, has lots of you know, a moog on it and um, it mixes different genres and and in an article about it and it just said it was made you know it's very different from other soundtrack albums instead of a band they're using one of the only two moogs in the country <laughs> so that was an interesting little you know tidbit of information um, but they went on to record several i don't think these sold very well but they're out there um, and they're actually three of the albums are on youtube of these, these instrumental versions these were all by light of the east uh, instrumental versions of a lot of the songs they had done um all done with moog and you know with, with fuzzy kind of electric guitar over it and and um they uh they went on to record several songs that kind of mixed in quite a bit of sort of electronic sounds and one of them was a song in late 1975 or no sorry i guess it, it became popular in late 1975 um, called um was yago or um, high school girls high school graduating class and there was a film by that same name that came out and so it was kind of the soundtrack to that but i mean it's it's a very if you listen to it you'll think oh this is like a you know early 80s you know new wave synth pop song but it's not it's from 1975 and it's also you know it was a number one or number two hit in late 75 early 76 so this wasn't something that was obscure it was a hit song predates yellow magic orchestra by you know several years yeah. so that's yeah. um and you also i mean you had a tradition as well as uh, these sort of um electronic organ albums going back to certainly 1970 at least probably earlier where they would do basically yeah these kind of um electronic instrumentals uh, you know often versions of popular songs um and quite a few of them were for trot songs Thank you. 
actually I picked up an LP on the on the street near the flea market. You know, a guy just had a stack of them, and I flipped through and and I just saw this cover and thought, well, that looks interesting. It's probably from the '60s. It was all in in Hanja and Chinese characters, so I, I couldn't actually read. My my Hanja is pretty limited, um, so I. I couldn't actually read who it was, but I just thought that's a neat cover, and I was like, "How much is it?" And he was like, "You know," and it was kind of you know, the covers falling apart a bit. And he was like, "Oh, like five bucks, I'm not sure." And I, I take it home and put it on, and it was actually the wrong record. <laughs> it wasn't. It, it didn't match. It was actually better because it was one of these electronic organ trot albums. And oh wow! Was, you know, kind of like spacey, and I was like, "Oh, like cool." Yeah. Well, there. I mean, there was a whole. I think. You know, I mean, maybe you know these young kids today don't know, but like my my great grandfather actually um, was kind of a, I mean, he was a plumber, but he was a uh, music buff, and he like you know built his own microphones and stuff. But he loved those kind of um, sort of early uh, experimental albums that played like people doing weird things with recording technology. You could do it back then. It was just um, a lot of work. Right. Yeah, there's... Ardelia Derbyshire. Um, yeah, and then, of course, Wendy Carlos and moving on up. It's one of the fun things, shopping for vinyls. You often don't know what you'll find. Um, but I feel like, you know, a lot of the stuff that's coming out today, it does feel very limited in a lot of ways. Um, or at least the stuff that's kind of put out like for sale, like the, I don't know. It's like, even though we can now record and sell all of this music, there's not really a big variety of stuff getting done or at least getting right. to us. I mean, that's just my, my end of the, the week soapbox. End <laughs> of the week and have a bottle of wine soapbox. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I think the other thing is that we're just so overwhelmed with, I mean, there's so much out there. You're so overwhelmed with yeah, stuff that true. it's it's hard to find it these days. What's happening to music? I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> that is my half a bottle of wine soapbox. Um, okay. So if, okay, so like I said, my audience is a lot of like, you know, K-pop, J-pop fans. Um, if there's anything that you could, you know, that you would want to, I don't know, kind of tell kind of these, like these young kids today, like about sort of the, like the music that's out there or what, like what you can listen to or um, no I don't, know. I, I don't really listen to a lot of current music, to be honest. Um, yeah, I suppose, well, for the past yeah couple of years, this was because of my research, I've been kind of delving into this older Korean stuff. Yeah, I don't know like how many gigabytes upon <laughs> i must have like a terabyte of just music generally right yeah. of all my you know because years ago i think when i not my first trip to korea but my second like after my first contract i went home for six months and came back and then i kind of digitized my all my cds and so yeah most of my cds have been sitting in a box or you know i'll go visit my sister and i'm like what is that's my nick drake box set what do you you've got all my cds <laughs> Hey, Nick Drake is uh, classic forever. I was um, actually digitizing, you know, while I'm uh, social distancing, I was um, digitizing some old um, 
like cassettes that I had of my old like college radio show and I put one in and like one of the first songs was Nick Drake <laughs> like, nice <laughs> I know the more things well again the more things change the more things stay the same I guess um you know you can't get away from from what you like yeah I never thought of recording my radio show because I did one on one yeah for a few years when I was or actually mostly after university um they were happy to have anyone especially we do the late night shows yeah it's pretty fun um well what okay what do the the kids in your school listen to like what are they listening to um do you know i, th- I think mostly yeah whatever's just whatever's current. In the charts yeah um, um a lot of bts <laughs> um, these days I'm trying to think. Yeah, I can't even remember some of the. There was some other group that started with B. This is like almost like maybe nine years ago. Um, E4 or something. Something I can't remember. Um, I can just remember one of the grade five or six girls. It, it snowed one day, and she was like writing that on on like car windows. <laughs> Yeah. You've got to express yourself somehow. <laughs> well, teen girls, we're, you know, it's a it's a special time of life. It really is. Right. You do some ridiculous things like follow Cliff Richard uh, <laughs> around on a bus. Um, so you've been in Korea 19, 19 years? Yeah, pretty much. What I've noticed just like, you know, in my little bubble here is that there there is a certain cachet to Japanese music in the West. Stuff like the Pizzicato Five, um, Cornelius, like there's a, there's like this, like the critical darling effect or whatever. And Korea has not duplicated that. They've sort of exported this, just like this pop worldwide. Like, do you have any awareness of that at all or, or sort of the, the way that Korea is seen by the West? Well, it's, I know in recent years, there have been some indie bands that have managed to play it, maybe South by Southwest or have toured the U.S. But yeah, I mean, certainly for years, like the Korean government was really trying to push K-pop, especially like once it started to become popular throughout sort of East Asia and then Southeast Asia, you know, it it certainly supported that, but it was, you know, it was the gold, you know, it had its eyes on the prize, the American, the American market. And, and that's just a part of, you can start talking about neo-colonialism or whatever. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, but... that's, I mean, just like as an outsider, you know, that, that is what it seems like to me. There is this air of, haha, we're popular in your country after, I mean, I guess we still have troops there, but there is, there is certainly that undertone to a lot of this stuff. Yeah, the Korea uh, culturally and in so many ways is so linked to the U.S. and kind of, um, I mean, even you could see that with Bong Joon-ho and Parasite, um, mm. winning uh, winning success in the U.S., winning all these Oscars. I mean, there was quite a bit of kind of commentary about that and why there is such this kind of pivot to the U.S. And uh, part of it comes from there was the whole development drive in the 1970s, which in its own way kind of um well maybe i'll talk about that in a second but you know like pak chung hee 
um, for all of his flaws in being a dictator, he did believe that Korea could become like a successful country, a great country, and pushed all of that. And and so you know, there is this drive for success overseas generally, or just a global awareness. But the U.S. is often the focal point for that. What's kind of ironic is that the way Korea is so successful now uh, with that. And, and, you know, for years, you know, the the Korean government and the media were always kind of pushing this, oh, like, you know, rain is popular in, in the U.S. And, you know, for a long time, when a lot of these K-pop groups had concerts in the U.S., it was mostly a Korean-American audience. Yeah, it was a very diaspora heavy. And then there would be people like me who were, we liked K-dramas and were just sort of uh, interested in foreign cultures in general but yeah it was very diaspora heavy but then yeah you know within the last decade that suddenly changed and this sort of in a way you could kind of call you know media propaganda suddenly it wasn't propaganda anymore and you know i can remember a friend of mine who works at yonsei university with foreign students saying like no like you know most of the students coming now they're coming because they like k-pop like it is becoming popular and but what's kind of ironic is that you know all of these Indus- cultural industries that Korea is doing so well with, um, like with the K-dramas, movies. And that's the thing. Korea's had a, a cachet with film, certainly, with film right. festival right. for a long time. But that hasn't really translated to music. But but certainly, you know, K-dramas and Korean film and now K-pop and, and even, you know, some of its like web webtoons, stuff like that. This is all of this sort of culture industry that it's doing so well with was precisely the stuff that was suppressed in the 1970s during the developmental drive. And, you know, one of the key moments of that was the marijuana crackdown. So you you did actually have this really innovative music scene, which was some really interesting blends of, of styles and instruments and, and even, you know, pioneering possibly synth pop and, you know, it, it, it was a really fertile scene. It was really interesting. And, but then just at the height of it, it gets cut off. Um, and the same thing happened, like, you know, movies, comics were censored, TV was very controlled. And so Korea kind of eventually succeeded, not because of support over the years, but, you know, completely, uh, you know, in spite of government actions. So it's kind of ironic in that way. Yeah, that, that the government first cut it off and then sort of once it realized that it was sitting on all this creative talent it said oh well maybe we can export this instead because i remember i mean i was swept along with like that first like how you wave in what 2002 i guess the winter sonata by young Jun, that uh that whole scene um yeah i mean because that took japan by storm and i mean that was pretty uh extraordinary in and of itself and those those drama those drama osts too like the um those are pretty i don't know i've always had a soft spot for those to me they they always sound more korean than anything else the drama soundtracks and i don't know if it's just because they're all like just packed full of these ballads but uh yeah you just you hear the there's something about i mean i'm (laughs) going to come back to this but there is something about the korean sense of melody i think that's very sort of unique to korea and you hear it just very 
very much in the drama, the drama soundtracks. Um, but if you don't watch dramas, then you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't all watch dramas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what is it that keeps you in Korea after all these years, nineteen years? It's well, it's just a really interesting place. <laughs> um, it's changed so much in the time I've been here. It's just it's always going. There's always always more to learn about it. It's in a very, you know, interesting part of the world, and it's been very interesting being here for, you know, the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. How has that been? Well, this was one of the first places, you know, it became the biggest, the country with the most cases outside of China for a while. But people, the government at first, you know, was kind of hesitant, and some people have suggested that when this, you know, whole cult outbreak took place in Daegu, that it, Maybe it was a good thing because it, you know, it really made the government jump into action and ramp up the testing. And they've learned from past mistakes um, during the MERS outbreak in uh, 2015. They, um, they didn't actually say what hospitals people were in. And so this time they were completely transparent. Some people complained maybe a little too transparent, um, but they would you know, release information on where these people had been, when they were there. Um, like what convenience store they stopped at so that people would have, you know, they would know whether they should go get checked or not. They would know to keep an eye on there any symptoms that might appear. And, and people were, and of course, you know, in East Asia, masks is, um, people wear masks if they're sick or for air pollution. So there was maybe a little bit of hoarding of masks, and um, but the government has now kind of started rationing them out, um, you know, two per week. But when it comes to food or toilet paper, I don't get that toilet paper. Um, <laughs> it's it's true. The the shelves here totally bare. It's absolutely crazy. There's no toilet paper. And I don't know. I mean, it might be because Korea's had this threat to the north for so long that maybe they're just not really perturbed so much by these things. But it's you know it's been pretty calm uh, and the government's handled it pretty well and so yeah that's it's been quite interesting yeah yeah and i think pretty different from how we're handling things here in america right <laughs> it's unfortunate because nobody you kind of it's you know some of these examples like drive-through testing that korea pioneered is is being copied and that's good but it's unfortunate that i don't know there was just and not just the u.s i mean it's, i think most yeah. countries were not they kind of thought it was over here and it wasn't something they needed to worry about and they should have really been on it yeah as new york uh kind of shuts down and the music industry here i mean it's just i don't know what's going to happen after all the touring like i mean musicians basically um I mean, one of the reasons I'm not currently a musician is that it's really, really hard to make a living as a musician. It's going to be even harder now that you can't even tour because streaming, while it's popular and everybody loves to count those streams, it doesn't actually make a lot of money for people. Right. Yeah. So people are pretty worried about sort of going going forward into 2020, whether they can, uh, you know, I mean, this might be the culling of the um, American music industry. We'll have to 
wait and find out. Right. Yeah. Or it'll all end up going the the Korean way. You know, <laughs> music. You know, because like we, you know, when Napster started, or the Korean equivalent, uh, I guess Soribata started taking out the music industry. You know, it very quickly pivoted more to you know, well, you always had you know advertising or soundtracks or, um, but particularly advertising and streaming and and Korea was doing that. Maybe not first, but certainly early on. Mm. Yeah, they were one of the first with um, commercialized streaming and, you know, have the paid services and all of that. Because, I mean, I mean, I followed Japan and they've been absolutely glacial uh, to adopt streaming, which I think is probably better for their musicians. But they are, they already had like the healthy recording industry. And right. yeah, and I think Korea was in a different situation. Right. Yeah. It helps having that large internal market. Mm, yeah, and Japan is also people are very like in like they're very diligent about being fans, and so you can be like a sort of you know mid tier band and um, make a great living just from your fan base, um, even if you like never really chart or have like a hit song. But as long as you have like your loyal group of fans, like they're going to be loyal forever. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different market. Like the big Korean acts, it's like TVXQ. They're still very, very popular in Japan. When I was just over in October, their fifteenth anniversary CD had just come out, and I mean, I went into Tower Records, and there was like the big display, or whatever, and all these little, you know, Japanese women were taking their pictures in front of the the signboards and. Um, the CD was like sold out everywhere, but I mean, you know, if you look at like, you know, quote unquote K-pop or whatever, like TVXQ, they're barely even mentioned really in the English language side of things anyway. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting just because, yeah, they are different markets and, and Japan is also, you know, um, you had the let's double income you know, and, and hyper development in the nineteen right, sixties, right. but that Korea only got that to that level in the nineteen nineties, and then were hit by the IMF. Oh God! And I think people underestimate like how big an impact that was. I mean, I can only speak from the English language side of things, but I really feel like the impact of that is not like really felt from uh, international fans looking at Korea. Yeah, I mean, it completely upended the economy it completely changed you know because the big thing had been you know employment for life and part of the uh the imf package was uh the flexible was it flexibilization of labor and making it easier to fire people and and leading yeah there's you know there's lots of you know when i was studying doing my master's in korean studies um we were reading quite a bit of sort of anthropological readings on basically neoliberalism and how young people were completely changing their outlook. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it, Korea has gone through all these sort of developmental phases and then kind of then doing away with uh, a lot of the, the developmental sort of uh, structures that they had built in the first place. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just always, it's been constantly changing and it's always in flux. Well, I am going to edit this into something absolutely delightful okay (laughs) with a lot of um music 
stings um, because that's my absolute favorite thing to do is edit audio. So thank you so much for humoring me for all these months and uh, talking with me today or tonight. Um, yeah, and next time I'm in Seoul after this dang travel ban lifts, uh, we'll have to go uh, meet and have like a record party or something. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh.